Money makes the world go around. The world go around. The world go around. Money makes the world go around. It makes the world go round. A mark a yen, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound. It's all that makes the world go round. That clinky clanky sound can make the world go round. All right, we are back. There's so many things we need to talk about as we go into 2014, but there's such a big pile of things we didn't get around to talking about in 2013. Case in point, looking at a Sacramento Bee article from December 8th, an article that came out about the time of America's, uh, well, the peak, I suppose you'd say, of our shopping mania for Christmas. This piece by Richard Chang is worth a paragraph or so. It was titled, The Secrets of the Outlet Discounts. Asked Mr. Chang, when you buy something at an outlet mall, do you know what you're getting? If you think it's a top quality brand name product at a deep discount, think again. Ten years ago, that may have been true, but most brands now sell lesser quality merchandise made just for their outlets. Well, now there's a dirty trick. But is anyone really surprised? And we've got a piece here from The Economist, the Lexington column. It's probably worth a couple of paragraphs looking back at 2013. Lexington was talking about a new book about George W. Bush titled Days of Fire. It was by Peter Baker, a long-serving White House correspondent. But I like to just quote from the way The Economist strings words together. Case in point. During his final days as president, George W. Bush asked a group of historians for advice on writing his memoirs. Public opinion was savagely against him. His record as a war leader, for many on the left, amounted to a bumper sticker indictment, Bush lied, people died. Conservative spending hawks railed his bailouts for banks and the car industry. Nativists in Congress took pride in having blocked his liberal immigration reform. After the Ozymandian collapse of the Bush era, many on the right denounced the president as a lover of big government and not really a conservative at all. Noted Lexington, Bush surprised the visiting historians that uh, came to uh, give him advice on how to write his memoirs. Noted Lexington, his guests were taken aback by his air of serenity and his eagerness to chew over his eight years. Then somebody mentioned his vice president, Dick Cheney, and they were struck by the host's suddenly defensive tone. Too many people think he had to just call me up and I do whatever I'm told, grumbled Bush, pointing to an Oval Office telephone for dramatic effect. He then rattled off a series of decisions where he had overruled Cheney, even citing dates. The piece concludes by noting that by the end of the second term of Bush-Cheney, the two men were on opposite sides of several issues, from North Korea to Israel, gun rights, climate change, secret surveillance of terrorist suspects, the car industry bailout, closing secret CIA prisons, and Syria. Yeah, I guess my question to Lexington is, yeah, well, did Bush override Cheney on anything? I don't know. Doesn't seem like it, which is probably why Bush is so defensive when he's talking to historians about his legacy. One story that's certainly going to bridge from 2013 into this year is, uh, what are we going to do about the NSA? In the wake of the leaks about the NSA's aggressive surveillance practices, there was apparently an 888% increase in open records requests by Americans demanding to know whether their phone calls and internet activities have been spied on. Evidently, the NSA responds to the letter saying it can neither confirm nor deny that any information has been gathered. We talked a couple of weeks back about the excellent piece in Harper's about this whole NSA thing. Foreign Policy's December 2013 edition also uh, had some interesting things to say about this whole deal. They had a little profile of Ron Wyden, the Oregon senator that fe- featured prominently in the Harper's piece. 
And Foreign Policy noted that um, when Ron Wyden asked uh, the question of the U.S. Director of National Security, James Clapper, last March, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans, he already knew the answer. He knew, of course, that the answer was yes. But his hands were tied because, as explained a couple months later, under the classification rules observed by the Senate, we are not even allowed to tap the truth out in Morse code. And we tried just about everything else we could think of to warn the American people. So even if you're a U.S. senator with access to classified information and you know the director of, uh, of national intelligence is lying to the public about it, um, you can't stop the proceedings and say, excuse me, that uh, you're lying. So luckily for the American public, it was Edward Snowden who revealed what Ron Wyden couldn't, that the NSA is surveilling U.S. citizens. That revelation allowed Wyden to wage his fight publicly, and he has done so. He wants to roll back the NSA's authority to collect data on Americans and make public the government's interpretation of terrorism laws. To get there, he's pressured intelligence officials and even President Obama to disclose their legal interpretations of the Patriot Act and the extent of the surveillance apparatus the law has been used to create. He's also pushed legislation to make the intelligence community more accountable to Congress. Foreign policy noted that he was on the losing side of votes to strip wiretap provisions from the Patriot Act. And last March, he was the only Democrat to join Republican Rand Paul in protesting the administration's targeted killing policy. We will continue to follow this story in 2014. And a lot of the creepy aspects of the fact that, uh, you know, private industry and our communications corporations are uh, bedded with all of these efforts and, and maybe a lot of other stuff that doesn't involve the government that's also creepy. To quote from the technology page from New Scientist, November 16th issue. The piece was titled, Can Viruses Talk? With a subtitle, If Sound Really Can Spread Malware Between Computers, Watch Out. Piece notes that a man named Dragos Ryu first became suspicious when he was installing the new version of Apple's OS X into his MacBook. Unasked, his laptop also started to update its BIOS, which boosts up the OS and choreographs use of disk drive and memory. In the three years since, reused computers have continued to do strange things, even when unplugged and even with the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth switched off. He now believes that hidden viruses on his machines are being controlled via ultrasound signals broadcast from one infected computer to another. The incredible claims made by Ryu, who is a respected computer security researcher from Vancouver, has sparked a row in the world of cybersecurity. Some doubt this sonic backdoor can be genuine. No one has yet tracked down computer code that can generate the audio. Although Ryu's claim remains unproven, others say the audio-based malware is a very real possibility. Evidently, the row started in October when Ryu posted on his Google Plus page that a high-pitched whine in his home sound system was not, as he'd suspected, being caused by electrical noise from his home wiring. Instead, the test showed it was probably being caused by interference from ultrasonic audio being transmitted between the loudspeakers and microphones of nearby computers. He also found that the ultrasound broadcast ceased when the receiving computer's microphone was disabled. Ryu told New Scientist, We have recorded high-frequency audio signals between our computers and have seen the computers mysteriously change their configuration even when they don't have network connections. Holy cow! All right, let's talk more about water, which is always a crisis in California. Although, you wouldn't know it to talk to Southern Californians. I've been speaking quite a bit in the last week or two with 
people south of the Tehachapis. And I don't think this is even on their radar screens. They're just counting on the fact they're going to import water from somewhere to keep things going down there. While up here, they're talking about water rationing if we don't get some rain real soon. And probably water rationing even if we do. On the last day of the year, the Sacramento Bee published a graph showing Sacramento's annual rainfall totals by calendar year 1878 to 2013. The previous low among all years was the drought of 1976, where the calendar year held only 6.7 inches of rain. But this year, as to say last year, we beat that by dropping it to 6.1. Earlier this week, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation said it was expected to cut water releases from Folsom Dam into the American River from 1,100 cubic feet per second down to about 500 feet per second, cubic feet per second. And yeah, I know it's hard to, uh, to say what that means, how many cubic feet per second, but what it may mean in the lower American is that you'll be able to walk across the river in many locations. The worry is, of course, if we don't start conserving now and no rain comes uh, throughout the rest of the winter and spring, we're going to be in a heap of trouble, meaning that water rationing is a virtual certainty in our future unless we uh, start getting some precipitation. There's also a piece a few months ago in the B.I. I wanted to talk about, a, which referred to the draining of groundwater taking place throughout the San Joaquin Valley. In a dry year, uh, farmers depend more upon water that can be pumped from the ground, and this is causing the water tables to fall all over the place. And accompanying that is sinking of, uh, of the soil in many places. It's known that in Merced County, in the town of El Nido, the land there is sinking at the rate of almost one foot per year thanks to groundwater pumping. In relation to that article, Felix Smith wrote the B to say that uh, regarding parts of Merced County now sinking, the U.S. Geological Survey got sucked in with the cries from Westlands Water District of regulatory drought. The groundwater mining in the San Joaquin Valley has gone on since the 1920s. One reason for the development of the Central Valley Project was to bail out farmers and curtail groundwater mining in the San Joaquin Valley. But once they got cheap federal water, a lot of them kept pumping groundwater. That is what got them into trouble. The chickens have now come home to roost on the groundwater miners. They will now cry to their members of Congress and get more Northern California water, though that could kill our fisheries and dry up our rivers. Which, of course, allows us to segue into our one of our pet topics on this program, the effort to steal yet more water out of Sacramento's Delta and send it down so they can frack with it and continue to pump it into the uh, into oil wells in the form of steam and to allow continued real estate development throughout California. There seems to be no thought in anybody's mind that <laughs> this, this does have to stop someday. It certainly appears that the rate determining step to California's growth is, is, is becoming water and it's becoming water now, and it seems pretty inescapable that if you want to keep drawing water and sending it south, and the one the resource you're sending south is diminishing, well, someone's going to get screwed. And uh, one thing I've learned living in uh, the state capital of California is that uh, just looking at how things are done politically around here, one thing I'm pretty sure is that uh, the people that have a lot of dough are not going to be the ones that get screwed. As far as I can see, I think it's going to be an uphill battle for people that are trying to manage the fisheries and, and, and farmers in the Delta area to go up against uh, the powerhouses of Southern California water interests. 
It's an old story. The B, to its credit, did a nice uh, piece about the decline of the Owens River Valley a few days ago. You know, if I had more time, I'd probably do a whole show on that. It's, it's a hell of a tale. So what I'll do instead is what I usually like to do, take a concise letter. In this case, Steve Miller's response to that piece to the B. Noted Steve, regarding a parched valley, January 5th, the Sacramento Bee produced a great article on the decline of the Owens River Valley. It spotlighted the impact of greed and politics on choosing one community over another. Residents of California should keep in mind that ignoring history results in a repeat. Noted Steve, Governor Jerry Brown's plan to divert water from the north under the guise of environmental concerns is a thinly veiled effort to get more water to Southern California. The Water Commission, which devised this farce, excluded any mountain water districts where our water comes from. Sound familiar? This is a revamped effort to reinstate Brown's failed peripheral canal plan of the 1970s. The plan stank then, and this new odor is twice as bad. And we've been talking about the bee over and over again on today's program, which happens from time to time. It's, uh, it's one of the few remaining uh, newspaper organizations that's, I think, worthy of merit. Although in this program, we wish they would go a little further from time to time. Their editorial piece from November 17th on this subject, noting big obstacle for the Delta Tunnels, who will pony up, has some good points in it. The B notes in the usual political wrangling over these sorts of things. The water districts, which are supposed to pay for these tunnels, are balking at the idea. To quote from the editorial, To sweeten the deal, the Brown administration has been quietly floating the idea of an enhanced environmental flow program under which public monies would be used to supplement flows in the Delta for the purpose of helping species to recover. Documents from an October 18th meeting of the Kern County Water Agency suggest that officials are discussing a figure of $1 to $1.5 billion. Ask the B, where would this water come from? Also ask the B, what would be the source of the money? For their part, to state officials say the idea is just in its early stages and those details haven't been worked out. A lot of people are referring to water as the oil of the 21st century, meaning that oil in the 20th century was kind of the key commodity for expansion around the world, and it may well be that in this century, water is the key ingredient, particularly in times of climate change, particularly as we're seeing right here in California as things appear to be drying up. The Sierra snowpack is 19% of normal at present, of which uh, California depends on that for a third of its water. In short, we appear to be in deep trouble. The thing that strikes me the most out of all the discussions we do on this is that, well, nobody seems to be recognizing the fact that we can't keep developing as we have in the past. We can't, or, or God knows we shouldn't try to put 15 million more people in the Central Valley of California, which is where they're planning to put a lot of people. I don't don't know if it's the majority of people they're planning to uh, bring to California in the decades to come, but it may well be the lion's share. And all this is going to be made so much worse by the fact that the Colorado River is also having major problems. Some are saying that the 14 years of drought, which have been affecting the uh, southwest part of the U.S., might be the worst that we've seen in the last 1,200 years. Officials are saying there's a 50-50 chance that by 2015, which is now next year, Lake Mead's water will be rationed to states downstream. That has never happened before. 
And apparently if Lake Mead goes below 1,000 feet elevation, uh, they will lose the capacity to pump water to serve the municipal needs of seven of the 10 people in the state of Nevada. So what can we do about uh, all these developers that want to keep making jillions of dollars by buying farmland and building stuff on it? I don't know the answer, and I've been pretty dismayed to talk to people in uh, the Sacramento and Davis areas about this mighty infill project that Phil Angelides has in mind for the area near the American River between Highway 80, Business 80, and uh, the railroad berm of the Southern Pacific Railroad. I've been shocked to talk to people who I think of as the most environmentally conscious folks I know, people who are actually in the trenches trying to fight the good fight, who are more or less saying, well, you know, you know, infill is better than building out in the farmland. To which my answer is, well, that might be true, but what if the two are completely disconnected? What if doing an infill project like Phil Angelides wants to do, which I think is going to ruin East Sacramento, what about giving that project a green light is going to do anything to stop development elsewhere? I've been watching this process unfold, how you submit a draft environmental impact report, which of course is paid for by the developer, in which he has some rather open allies, that of the city, which greedily is eyeing the possibility of generating more tax revenue from a new development. And by the way, I've had the draft environmental impact report for this project printed up. It's two thick binders worth of material. I mean thick. And I've attended meetings where people have patiently explained that we have a process, we're going to follow this process, I take a look at one of these binders and say, uh, to, to say, this is, this is nonsense. There are statements here that, well, they just don't seem that they could possibly be true. And yet, although the public is invited to challenge the things that are in the draft environmental impact report, it seems to me that while the powers that be are required to answer the questions, I don't see how they're going to be held accountable for giving BS answers. Just to cite one small example, it turns out that... Uh, There's a threatened species of bird, which is uh, near the new development. It turns out this particular type of hawk nests in my Monterey pine. And beautifully outlined in the draft environmental impact report is a diagram showing the location of this bird's nest. And it's patiently explained that uh, as part of this process, if if there's a negative impact on the, uh, the hunting area of this particular bird... By law, the developer is going to have to set aside some land elsewhere. And I guess swear, you know, (laughs) cross his heart and hope to die that he won't develop the other piece of land as well. So that the bird, having been denied the area that it usually hunts in, can then just go upriver a few miles where there's been a thoughtful set aside for it and hunt there instead. I have my doubts about how well this is all going to work. I got a feeling that this McKinley village goes through and uh, I have every indication that all the appropriate skids have been greased, to say nothing of palms, that uh, decades from now, people that, uh, that move in and grow up in this toxic environmental environment are going to look back and say, like the headline in the B referring to uh, the look back at Candlestick Park, it was a dump, but it was our dump. It does amaze me that looking back at the idea of building a stadium for the Giants, San Francisco Giants back in the late 50s, that you would pick. Well, let's put it this way. You couldn't pick a worse place in the Bay Area, I don't think, 
than Candlestick Point. The cold ocean air comes blowing in over a low spot in the hills and sweeps right down over Candlestick. As you know, if you ever went to a game there, miserably bad place for a sports venue. And after 53 years, they're finally going to throw in the towel. The Giants moved out a long time ago. The Niners are going to move down to Santa Clara and they're going to tear it down. And I wonder if decades from now, after being condemned for its environmentally disastrous area, they won't do the same with this McVillage, McKinley Village, that Phil Angelides wants to put up. I know I'm going on a bit about this, and we'll take a break in a minute, but I just want to close with a piece by a letter by Pat Lynch to the the B on this topic, referring to a laudatory piece by Josh Panay about this, uh, this, this development. Said Pat Lynch... Josh Payne's panegyric notwithstanding, McKinley Village will damage a nature reserve, flood East Sacramento and Midtown with traffic, increase our air contamination, and further imperil the safety of our kids who walk to school. How will this traffic find its way to us? Simple. The developer, Angelides, plans to blow holes through the levees so he can tunnel thousands of cars into our already overburdened streets. He calls this smart infill. It feels like outspill to me. To build three car garage houses in a toxic basin, then breach the levees to send the cars into our streets, violates the dictates of responsible growth, and turns our classic but fragile neighborhoods into collateral damage. Calling this profiteering fiasco smart growth is another case of lipstick on a pig. And by the way, the notion that the McKinley Village is not smart growth, but rather a case of lipstick on a pig is an opinion that does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And you know, we haven't even talked about this arena fiasco, which we will not do, I assure you, dear listener. And let's talk about funner stuff in segment three. And let's take a much-needed break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. Hey there, little red riding hood. You sure are looking good. You're everything a big bad wolf could want Listen to me Little Red Riding Hood I don't think little big girls should Go walking in these spooky old woods alone 